Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. So, Guy, Nick Mason, source full of secrets, of which we are um, two-fifths, right? Are, we're going back out on the road in the summer across the UK. We are. We're, it's all of June, so brace yourself. What's it called? It's called the Set the Controls Tour. What a brilliant name. Who do you uh, think could have come up with such a great name for a tour, Gary? I wonder. I think yeah. I'm looking at him, right? But then right. I did come up with uh, Nick Mason, source full of secrets. You did. And in fact, that came up in a podcast then because you were inspired by Woody Woodman's U-boat, weren't you? I was, yes. Anyway, anyway, but enough of that. So... Join Nick, Guy, Lee Harris, uh, Don Beacon and me as we celebrate the early years with, you know, that incredible, it's an incredible body of work, isn't it? The early Pink Floyd. It goes up to just before Dark Side of the Moon. It goes up to 1972, all the film soundtracks, all the Sid stuff, stuff you've never Mm. heard, stuff that no one's ever heard, frankly. obviously. Echoes is the big sort of, you know, uh, what is that? What would you call it? Magnum Opus. Yeah, I love a Magnum, don't you? Yeah, I never met Magnum. (laughs) (laughs) Um, anyway, tickets are on sale now and you can buy yours at uh, myticket.co.uk. And Kilimanjaro Live presents Nick Mason's Source Full of Secrets, the Set the Control Tour. Here she comes. Oh, hello, hello. 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 My sounding good. Hello. You sound Fruity. Fabulous. Fruity. Yes. Right. Well, hello, Gary. Hey, guy. How's your shoulder? My shoulder's much better. I went to see the doctor today, actually. Um, and it uh, looks like I'm on the mend. Um, so I will play the violin again. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, how about you? You went to the hairdressers, didn't you? You celebrated the end of lockdown by going to the hairdressers. I I had a blue rinse, of course. No, I, I I got, I actually, I got it short, (laughs) short, spiky and peroxide. (laughs) In honor of our guest. In honor of our next guest. Yes. Do you know what? Someone has actually said that we should ask him about the time he was barricaded inside a five-star Thai hotel suite, Thai hotel suite, and had to be shot with an elephant tranquilizer dart, strapped up like Hannibal Lecter, then forcibly removed by the entire Thailand special forces. Really? I, I yeah. think you should you should ask him that then, because I'm not going anywhere near it. That sounds It's like we, we might be sued for that. It's you he wants off yourself to <laughs> Listen, I remember a time meeting Billy Idol for it is him who we are talking of. For it uh, is he. In Los Angeles in the 80s. And, um, and he went, oh, fuck me, man. He goes, I woke up this morning and, uh, and I gobbed on the wall. And I thought, Billy, what are you doing, man? You're not on tour now. You're at home. <laughs> <laughs> Which, uh, you know, I understood. Anyway, should we, should we, should we get on with let's, it? Yeah, let's go and talk to Billy Idol. And welcome to Rock and Tours. Sit, sit back, strap yourselves in and enjoy. Okay, guys, I'm ready. Well, it's a big tune for sure. I actually wrote that originally for Tina Turner. Of course, I had gone and found Joni Mitchell down in Florida and brought her back. You know, what people forget about Bowie is that he was such a kind man. Remember me? I'm in a band now. It's called Roxy Music. You know this thing about the 10,000 hours of experience? Oh, yeah. Get good at something. When we recorded Arnold Lane, we'd done about 50 hours. The Rock Hunters podcast with Gary Kemp and Guy Pratt. There is no mistaking that voice. (laughs) That's Billy Idol. (laughs) That's your actual Billy Idol, that is. How how you doing, Bill? Not bad. I'm doing quite well, thank you. Yeah, you know, uh, amongst all of this that's going on. Where are you? So I'm in Los Angeles. Hollywood. Well, you must be breathing a sigh of relief right now. Well, that I think it's surging everywhere, you know, that uh, it's gone kind of crazy in the States, the coronavirus and everything. I know you on a lockdown in, in London. I think, I think guy, a guy meant the, uh, the transitions in order right now. You're kind of, you're on the verge of kind of be- becoming Mad Max beyond Thunderdome, I thought. Was... <laughs> <laughs> it's getting a bit like that, yeah. <laughs> So what was your what was your year meant to be, and what has it turned into? Well, I expect, uh, well, for a start, I think you know we we were doing. I was doing this thing with Steve Jones and Paul Cook. Oh yeah, of course. There was a chance, you know, that would have happened in the summer. Yeah, and things like that, and um, and of course, a lot of things like that got put off. But in the meantime, though, we've uh, 
well, of course, we've made some new music, which really was great. That's what we were going to actually was what we were going to do anyway. So, funnily enough, when uh, when everything sort of shut down in March, we we were kind of going to do some new music anyway. And um, it's, yeah, well, we would have played the Generation Sex in the summer. So, uh, so a lot of things have got put on hold, but hopefully they'll they will happen eventually again. You know. So, have you been working with Tony again? Uh, yeah, we'll just we did a couple of gigs. That's Generation Sex of Sex Pistols meets Generation X, and we did you know some Sex Pistol numbers and some uh, some Generation Sex uh, X numbers. Um, I must say that is a as when I first heard about that last year, it is that is such a no brainer as a concept. <laughs> it's brilliant. And at first we were doing um, kind of with the uh, never you know. Um, they swindle. We did some of the swindle songs because, you know, just I didn't want people to be Johnny Rotten, you know what I mean? <laughs> I'm not pretending yeah. to be Johnny Johnny or anything. It's just have fun, really. So at first we did some of the kind of swindle songs, which are a lot of fun, but of course a lot of people don't know them as well. as Frigging in the rigging. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like we were doing the Sid songs, um, My Way, and yeah, and then we're doing some Generation X, Untouchables, uh, you know, my gen- your generation and, you know, Ready, Steady, Go. And- the definitive version, that is. Are you saying you were writing new stuff for- with Tony? Oh, no. Um, no, not with Tony at the moment. Uh, we did talk about that a bit, but uh, no, we, no, I just meant I've been, you know, doing some stuff with Steve Stevens, really. And um, Oh, fantastic. This, this producer, Sam Hollander, and writer-producer, and uh, Butch Walker, these two guys, we've sort of been working with them, and we, we were going to put out a four... The idea is to put out, um, like, a four-track EP, oh. maybe a, a couple of them, in a, you know, over a course of a year and a half. And, um, yeah, so that's what we were kind of preparing, this first four-track EP. But also I did this um, collaboration with Miley Cyrus, which is coming out on November the 27th. And oh, you, great. Yeah, and it's... Uh, yeah, the producer, Andrew Watt, um, he really gets the sort of the Keith Forsey, Billy Idol era kind of thing. And uh, so it, it, the song actually is really quite Billy Idol. Oh, very it, cool. It's really a cross of, you know, Billy Idol meets Miley kind of thing. But um, yeah, I mean, it is a dance pop song. That's called Night Crawling. And that's coming out on November the 27th, any moment on her album. Mm. Have you done the video for it? No, well, I think she's just on the first couple of singles. And I think the... It's the second one. The first one was Midnight Sky, and I think the second one is with Dua Lipa. That's right. Oh, my God. So you're on this album, Dua Lipa, Miley Cyrus, Billy Idol. You're back where you belong, right? You know, making <laughs> great pop records. Yeah, actually, that's what it, it's a really, yeah, it's a, it really came out well. I mean, uh, it's, it's it, like I say, it's not so far away from what I was doing in the 80s, and um, it's a little bit more, you know, it's a little bit more down Miley's direction as well, but uh, that's what was nice about it. It was like, well, this is almost a Billy Idol track. Wow, you know. And because I wanted to work with that chap, Andrew Watt, uh, producer, he's he's really good. And as I say, he kind of gets that kind of Keith Falsey era, you know, which was the 80s and early 90s. Beautiful production, all that stuff. And then... Yeah, I mean, yeah, Keith was fantastic. Yeah. And um, so he kind of gets that. So uh, I'm hoping I can do some work with him. Maybe one of these other EPs would be with him and then there'd be a third one with maybe with somebody else. And what you, what you were doing with with Keith as well, that was, there was a kind of hint of the fifties about that, wasn't there? What you were doing had had a sort of retro feel to it, but made modern. Yeah. Well, that's because, yeah, yeah. I liked a lot of, uh, I like a lot of fifties music. I liked a lot of, you know, the early rock and roll, because I suppose when I was six listening to the Beatles and, you know, the Rolling Stones and all the radio and Ready Steady Go and all that, um, you know, um, I would, the only place you could go as kind of was, was to the fifties and listen to, because the Beatles would always talk about Buddy Holly and stuff. So, and Buddy Holly actually was still having hits in the early sixties in England because he, there was a couple of tracks he'd done as demos, which they'd put a real band on them, and uh, they, they put them out as singles. And I think they were hits in England. So you kind of had this straddling of the the fifties, still kind of because in England they still loved rock and roll. They hadn't hadn't completely gone Fabian and all that jazz, and it's like the states. I mean, it's still going on, but. But there's always a Ted thing, wasn't there? The Ted thing never stopped. Yeah, the, the Teddy Boy thing never stopped. So this kind of love of rockabilly was was there, and uh, so I kind of yeah, it was. I wanted to sort of put all of that, all of the things I love really into the music. But you you had that you had that kind of you could have been if you'd been born a few years earlier, you would have been one of Joe Meek's boys, wouldn't you? Really, that that was your. <laughs> 
You had that hind look. <laughs> well, the difference we were kind of making ourselves up kind of thing. That was the great thing about punk. We kind of were making ourselves up instead of having a Svengali there. I know I know Malcolm was there for the Pistols but and Bernie Rhodes for the Clash, but <laughs> I don't think it was the same kind of Svengali thing that Larry Palmer had. But, but you, you, you started, when you were started, uh, it started out in Chelsea. Now, Chelsea were this band with Gene October, weren't they? And I remember, because we supported, when I, when I first started what became Spandau Valley, we were sort of just a you know a bunch of kids trying to do punk and we ended up supporting chelsea at the at the um at, at the roxy but you weren't in it by then but chelsea were weren't they put together as a band for acme attractions as a kind of you know acme attractions version of malcolm sex pistols yeah actually that's uh i answered an advert john cravine of uh acme put a put an advert in the paper and um so i answered it because uh yeah you know it was, it was difficult to find there's only a few people in London at that time, really into it, you know, that, you know, new Malcolm store or even got that there was, you know, the punk rock was going on in the States and stuff. There was just a few people. I mean, like, you know, you know, maybe 500 or something. I don't know. But, uh, yes, yeah, so you had to seek people out. And I, so I answered an advert and it, it ended up that it was for um, for Chelsea. And, yeah, they didn't have a, a guitarist. And uh, actually, it was kind of funny. There was a me and two guys who were really like session guys for this audition that I had to do with. <laughs> I had the really short hair. I had kind of like, you know, a stripy, I, you know, I looked kind of, you know, I had the, I had some winkle pickers from, uh, you know, sex and I, you know, I had the gear on, you know, so, uh, <laughs> so I, I kind of did my audition and, you know, I, I can't really, you know, they helped me to tune up the two, <laughs> the two session guys. And then, you know, of course I got the gig. And they just couldn't believe it. They were just going, this guy can't even tune up. And, given it <laughs> big, and John Cravine said, he knows the scene, he's got the look, and he's known what we're going for. So, and, I, and that was what was going on. Yeah, you know, we were just a little bit on the inside. And, um, yeah, and also, yeah, eventually, um, what with Chelsea, me and Tony, I got Tony, Tony joined uh, Chelsea then. Because Tony James, have, yeah. Yeah, Tony James. There's no bass player. And actually, John Cravine said, well, um, I said, I've got this mate who can play bass, you know, and um, he said, well, well uh, do you write songs? And I kind of went, yeah, which we'd never written a song, you know, ever. And he said, well, you go, you two go off and write a song and prove to me, you know. <laughs> so we went off and wrote Ready, Steady, Go, the song. Oh. Was <laughs> brilliant, brilliant. And he, of course, he went, well, this is perfect, you know, and it you know, had a bit of a punk thing, but at the same time, it was a tiny bit retro because it was talking about, us growing up, loving watching Ready Steady Go because it was incredible. Ready Steady Go, you had live Beatles, live Rolling Stones, live Who, and then all those acts from and, the and state. Kathy McGow, wow, wow, and, stack, and they used to, and a and a massive stacks thing going on, didn't they? Had a huge soul element to that show yeah. as well. They used to do stack specials and stuff, and then people miming to hit to the that thing of the Stones miming to a Sonny and Cher song. It was insane <laughs> stuff. I, I love yeah. that you mentioned Kathy McGowan in the song as well. I thought that was just that's right. So good. Yeah. We did a bit of a homage to, to Kathy, but that's right. So you supported that later version of sort of right to work. Yeah. And you know what? Can I just say something? In, in about 1980, I was walking down Labrick Grove and this bloke stopped me and said, do you want to join a band? And I went, oh, well, maybe. And then he said, are you a musician? And it was Gene October. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have winkle pickers? No, I didn't. Because <laughs> I, I, I was a bit obsessed with you, Billy. I'd say you were my first punk crush, properly. I mean, I'm a, probably only a couple of years younger than you, but, um, you know, that's a lot when you're kids. And I, and I saw you when I was just 17, and I was uh, not, not the magazine, but I, I was only 17. And I saw you at um, Dingwalls. Uh, with with Steve Dagger, who became uh, who was our manager, became Spandau's manager, and we loved you. I just loved the whole look of what you were doing. You know, you looked like a pop star, the curling lip, the blonde hair, and you had these. And then we went to see you at the Vortex because you had a whole in Wardour Street because you had a whole. Um, you you did a residency there, and I remember you know I had this little band which we we I forgot what they were called, them Makers or something, the Cut, which ended up at Spandau Ballet. And we all went to see you. And then we went into the school art department and we made all of these T-shirts that were like pop art T-shirts copying the kind of look you did. Yeah, because that's, yeah, actually, yeah. So Tony could, Tony James, he could, he was a good artist. So he could actually, he would draw things like, you know, you know, um, Patricia Hurst as Tanya, you know, with a machine gun, you know, on his t 
Like, you know, he'd write Generation yeah. X on top and, I don't know, Kill Your Idols or I don't know, whatever. You know, that was always his thing, wasn't it? He carried that yeah. on throughout the 80s, the 90s, yeah, wasn't he? Yeah, his brilliant eye for design and, and the zeitgeist. Yeah, it was so great at drawing. So my thing was, I really <laughs> like Russian constructivist kind of artwork. So I, that's what I was trying to do, put shapes and... And then I'd, I'd do a record thing with '77, but I just it was just, and then with all spray paint and uh, and the kind of spray paint was, you know, the, we're writing, you know, our sort of uh, slogans on the wall, and then we're wearing our paint sprayed, paint splattered shirts and stuff. No, but I think you had such a great sense of the visual, and that I remember that first single with '45 done like a, a Russian constructivist thing. I thought it was, you know, that Barney Bubbles did us for you. I, I, but, that, but that became the look of the 80s, didn't it? With Neville Brody in the Face magazine and that whole constructivist thing really took over. But you were definitely the first yeah. band to ever to ever do that. Yeah, yeah. This just, uh, it was just, uh, it's just yeah, that's how I could do things on a T-shirt. And we gave us, gave Generation X a kind of an early look where we could all, we could all, I mean, like the drummer loved Keith Moon, so he would wear the Target, you know. Yeah, I Not noticed that. That was the first Target T-shirt I ever saw on top of the Pops. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so we all had a bit of a it was and we kind of we loved the who and so we loved their kind of because they kind of embraced a lot of the art side you know they kind of had when in the, in the early 60s they, they had quite a sort of extravagant look at one point and in the psychedelia thing so they kind of really got into clothes with badges and logos and signs and and so yeah you know it was always something big in rock and roll you had to come up with your own look uh, you, you know, because that's the great thing. I mean, you, you, you could love your heroes, but you couldn't be them. You had to be, you know, they were telling you, Lou Rudo was felt and Bowie and people were kind of, they didn't say it, but they were telling us kind of straight out, you've got to find out who you are and you've got to be that. Yeah. Because you did very early on, the thing with Gen X, Billy, is that you've very much, as opposed to sort of being just straight ahead punk, you very much embraced rock and roll. You looked like a rock and roll band and you made proper rock and roll records. Do you know what I mean? It was like there was an eye to the future rather than just being that nihilistic in the moment. Well, they could play. Yeah. But I, I mean, like Family of the Dolls, I remember that was like the first great kind of proper rock record of punk. It was, you know, it was like a real great sweeping rock tune with killer riff, killer riff. That. And Ian Hunter produced that as well, didn't he? Which sort of, you know, talking about your eyes. It was fun. Yeah. He was, was great, actually. Um, you know, because yeah, we we even though we'd done one album, we really did that in three weeks in a in a converted garage. The first album, so it was like we really didn't know anything what we were doing, and and it was great because Ian, we you know, kind of being a bit more of a musician himself. You know, it was great. He kind of explained things, and he helped me with certain singing things. He taught me, uh, but it, he was great. You know, he's fun to work with, and um, yeah, it was it, it was a sort of uh, we we were transitioning a bit really. Um, with that album, um, I thought it was a bit too early. I would have liked to have done another punk rock record, a little bit like the first one, and then maybe transition. But uh, we kind of transitioned a bit, a bit quicker. And uh, but in a way, it was right. And I've gone on doing that. I've gone on kind of, kind of changing up what I do slightly. But I remember Ian Hunter made a lot of sense to me because I remember on the first album that you had Kiss Me Deadly. And, and the, I think it's the end of Kiss Me Deadly. I think Tony says some things at the end. And it was just, it was like the end of all the young dudes. It was it was a homage going on there. I can't remember what it was. But uh, but I remember thinking how, you know, he was so right for the group because All the Young Dudes is a song every one of us wished we'd written and performed and sang. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, well, Tony James, too, was a massive Mott the Hoople fan. So... Um... And Mick Jones, wasn't it? Because they used to follow Mott the Hoopla around, wasn't it? Because Mick and Tony used to share a flat, didn't they? That's right. Tony James and Mick Jones kind of best friends. So, um, yeah, that's right. They both love yeah. Mott the Hoople. They just, they, that's one of their favourite groups. You, you, you used to get a lot of stick, though, for being... The, it's the reason I loved you guys, because I had a real pop sensibility, you know, growing up on glam rock. And, and, and I, I like, you know, I, I was at that gig at the, at the Screen in the Green where, where the Sex Whistles played with Glenn Matlock and... I don't know whether you were at that one with all the Bromley contingent. Yeah. Uh, and that changed my life, that gig. You know, back and, you know, we, me and Steve Norman went back and formed a, a band the, sort of the week after. But um, you were much more commercial and and uh, and a lot of people gave you stick for it. There was a famous Tony, um, who, who's the journalist uh, who was Brexit? What's his name? Tony Parsons interview, where he, he slagged you off for drinking orange juice and all the punks got really angry that you didn't drink booze. <laughs> I, well, I remember the really controversial thing. I thought I remember reading a Led Zeppelin interview uh, in NME, and it was done where they were rehearsing somewhere. I don't know if it was for Nebworth or something. 
and you turned up at the rehearsal. You walked in and they had some vocoder or some doubling device and you sang a whole lot of love into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I remember thinking, what? What's, what's he doing at Led's in a, in a room with Led Zeppelin? You can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was great. We kind of ran into, um, yeah, you know. Um, uh, Jimmy Page. <laughs> Robert Park just jumped out of this taxi because we were kind of rehearsing up the road from this place they used in Fulham. And... Um, the Fulham Palace Road, there was some theatre they were using to, like, you know, to rehearse for their a tour. So he, he happened to just jump out of a cab as we were kind of walking on the road, and he said, come in, you know. And then uh, he showed us his microphone, and, yeah, he had this kind of setup where he had, like, an octavider, so that he was... He had this... His voice was three times above where he was singing, three times beneath him. Fucking hell, that's how he's doing it. You know? And then... Uh, you, know, you, know, you thought it was the tight trousers. Jimmy Page had some guitar which you know you could move a lever and it would you know <laughs> it would change keys and that was kind of quite incredible oh yeah and so i don't know it was kind of it was great it was kind of great and uh, yeah we did get a lot of slagging but you know it's just the way it was the time it was and yeah you had to negotiate that somehow and you had to kind of like well own it really and uh, move on and not worry about it too much you, you had more commercial aspirations i think or you more more greater aspirations than what would you know what was the general punk kind of idea you know of sort of just you know destroy you you had something beyond even you know the shores of of, of england didn't you really well, I think too. I mean, it's a bit like you you eventually coming up with Spandau, you know, you, you just knew you had to find your own way of doing it. And it was, you know, you just couldn't, you know, copy someone and, you know, just uh, be up there imitating something. You had to kind of find your own way. And so, yeah, you know, whatever we were doing, it was because that was the way we, you know, we were different to the Sex Pistols. Sex Pistols were different to the Damned. The Damned were different to the Clash. The Clash were different to the Buzzcocks. The Buzzcocks were different to Susan the Banshee. <laughs> the Banshees were different to Generation X. And Cure were different to, you know, yeah. it went on like that. And the Spandau Ballet was completely different to all of us. And I think that was the, that was the great idea of it all, was that, yeah, we wanted to put up these choices because I felt, I think we've, I just sort of felt, um, you know, that's what we didn't have. We were like, what was the choices for our generation kind of thing? And I think that's what we were giving people. And the, yeah, you didn't want to give, we don't want to be carbon copies of each other. It was important that we sort of found our own way, whatever that meant, whatever it meant in being slagged off or being, yeah, no, the Tony Parsons things, we, we all had the clap. So that's why we were drinking orange juice. <laughs> Oh, mate, that would have been cooler. <laughs> Superb. Uh, I thought it was a great sort of two fingers up to Tony Parsons' laddism at the time, and I thought it was – I was on your side. Now I know it's the clap. It's, well, Because you know. <laughs> my other favourite punk band or post-punk or something in between was Rich Kids, and I thought that Steve New was so incredible – as a guitar player, visually and yeah. and musically on stage, and you ended up trying him out for Generation X, didn't you? Yeah, that's right. Um, but unfortunately, he was like he'd, he'd gone into the sort of heroin work world. By the time he'd come to rehearsal about three hours late, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and by the yeah, time yeah. the rehearsal was ending, you know, so I ended up playing guitar. But it was kind of you know it was kind of cool. But uh, yeah, one night he spent um, the whole night going back and forth on the eleven bus route, look because he dropped his gear on the back of the bus and he, he, and he oh, got yeah. the bus and he spent the whole night hoping that he could find the same bus and find his, you know, oh, <laughs> so oh, no. watching him go from being that guy in the rich kids, you know, where he was that kind of youthful. Yeah. He had, he had everything. He was a great guitar. Yeah. He had a great. Well, I remember seeing him around that time and I knew him a bit. He was friends of a friend of mine and he played me. He'd been working on some film with, with Mick Jones, funny enough, which is set around Labrick Grove. And it was all based around And he'd written all this African music, like high life guitar music. And it was insanely brilliant. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's just incredible. But then he, you know, and then he just sort of drift out of, you know, the uh, consciousness. <laughs> yeah. So, Culture, yeah. I, 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 I did a benefit for him with the rich kids, uh, not long before he died, actually, and he 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 still had his chops. You know, he was he could he could still play, but it was it was quite tragic. Yeah, uh, Billy, you were at our first gig, weren't you? You at the very you were at the first Spandau Ballet gig at the Blitz Club. I mean, that's what was fantastic about back then. You know, you really watched you know people right from their embryo 
you know, onwards. Because, you know, yeah, if you just happen to be in the right place, and that was what was great. I, it was great watching you guys, you know, <laughs> seriously go through your different image, your music and your music morphing <laughs> and changing. It was like really, it was really fun. And I think we were all doing that, so it was kind of fun watching each other. Billy, I have to, t- I have to, I have to remind you of a of a story. I'm, sh- I'm, I'm, I'm one hundred percent. This is true. Cause it was we were at Steve Strange's flat. Steve Strange run the Blitz Club for people listening, and um, and we were playing Ouija board. Do you remember? There was me, Martin, Princess Julia, Steve Strange, and you, and. Maybe I imagine you were there. Maybe I spirited you there, but I'm sure you were there. And I remember this. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode of Rock on Tours is sponsored by AG1, the daily nutrition supplement. AG1 is a comprehensive and convenient blend of over 70 vitamins, minerals and other vital ingredients like gut-friendly bacteria, antioxidants and much more. Just one scoop of AG1 daily has all the nutrients you need to support your mental performance, energy levels, heart health and immune system. To be honest, it's pretty vital stuff for us because when you've got a life on the road and you're short of time or you're too busy to plan and prepare healthy meals, you're getting your podcast together, you're being shouted at and it's just a nightmare. AG1 gives me all the good stuff and helps keep my energy levels where I need, ready for showtime or doing the podcast and with a nice vanilla taste. It keeps me focused, feeling good, feeling healthy with its daily dose of vitamin C and zinc. And it's so easy to use. Just one scoop a day gives me over 70 carefully selected ingredients. Simple. Trusted by Olympians, F1 drivers and the rock on tours. So if you want to replace your multivitamin and more, start with AG1. Try AG1 and a free one-year supply of vitamin D and five free AG1 travel packs with your first subscription. Go to drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. That's drinkag1.com slash rockonteurs. Check it out. Clyde still tells the story, and I remember the glass going around the board, and it was it was saying something like die or die. And it started going crazy, and we all got totally scared, and we jumped up, and as we jumped up, the curtains all fell down <laughs> in the flat. And, and I remember running for the door and getting trapped in the door with Steve Strange. So maybe Steve had set this whole thing up. I don't know, just to get trapped in the door. But uh, but it was it was obviously it was unforgettable for me. But you've forgotten it, Billy. <laughs> you know, I can't remember. It's funny, you know, with Valley of the Dolls, the album. I mean, you know, when we recorded with Ian Hunter, I I can remember writing the songs. I can remember the rehearsals. Fuck me, can I remember any of the? I can't remember. I can remember. I can remember Ian Hunter coaching me. I can remember. I have this picture of me seeing the control because we, we did it in Wessex. I can see the control room. I have a couple. I've just got these very. There's there's no memory of recording the songs. Oh, oh. except for Valley of the Dolls. I think Valley of the Dolls and maybe singing King Rocker or something. I can remember. It's really weird, you know. <laughs> I can't remember. I can remember writing the songs. I can remember the rehearsals. <laughs> Because no, that, that happens. Us three all shared the same label, weren't we? We were all on. Yeah, the same we were label. all on Christmas because um, Billy, I played for I played for uh, um, Ice House, the Australian band. So I was half the time we were running around. I said Italy and Germany and everywhere, and you'd be coming off from miming your single as we were going on to mime ours, and we'd all be in the same hotel. <laughs> didn't you? Didn't Keith Forsey uh, produce Ice House too? Did he? Yeah, he did. Yeah. So you got he, so it was so many connections. Yeah. Well, if I, Billy, I don't know if you remember, I'm, I'm, I don't know, it was about 1984, probably, 83, 84. I was in New York. I don't know what I was doing there, but I was, you know, bouncing off the walls as he did in New York. In, in the limelight, and, probably, or somewhere like that. In the limelight, an area and yeah. everywhere. And and somehow, because everyone I knew was the sort of Christmas crowd, Jeff Ulrich and Monday and all that lot, somehow I ended up being asked to go and do an audition for you. Wow. 
so I did. I actually came and did all. It was just a drum. I don't think even Steve was there, and we jammed for a bit. And I remember thinking at the time, well, a I was already in a band, and I, I loved the idea of playing and hanging out with you. But I was thinking, this isn't the gig for me. I'm just, I just don't look rock and roll enough. But then at the end of it, you very sweetly said, "Look, are you doing anything? Do you fancy coming for a drink?" I went, "Yeah, all right." And I think you dropped me back at my apartment two days later. <laughs> <laughs> And I have no fucking idea what went on, but it was the full bright lights, big city. There was a famous nefarious apartment involved. We ended up at at some point, um, but but and I never ever got to say thank you. So can I just say thank you? And and did you verbally design a concept album together during that time? I think pretty much. <laughs> Billy, you 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 grew up in. Uh, you 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 spent quite some time in America as a kid, so I suppose going to America and being, you know, taking over America didn't feel so foreign to you. Is that right or not? Yeah, it wasn't quite such a culture. I mean, it was a culture shock. I still, you know, like uh, had a massive culture shock when I got there. But yeah, it was, wasn't quite so daunting just because you know, yeah, I had lived there as a child and I've been to Manhattan and uh, you know, I lived down Long Island. So in a way, I kind of did have a, a kind of. I had a bit more of a, you know, understanding maybe or, you know, of America and things, or at least of New York and, and the Long Island and stuff. But, um, but yeah, I mean, the New York in the early 80s was incredible. Oh, it was insane. Anything went, you know, anything went, you you know, that's, it was, that's the feeling you got. It was just like, it was like a mad mad you know, post-apocalyptic. <laughs> well, you know, let's put a club inside a church. I mean, that's, yeah. that's was, New York's idea. It, yeah, in the very early 80s, there was actually clubs in people's house, apartments. They, they, like, there was this after-hours club, the Continental, that went from being this guy's Harvey's apartment where he had a lot of kitsch, you know, uh, kitsch stuff there. And, and, it was, and then he moved, gradually morphed into a gigantic after-hours club. The Continental became massive, you know. <laughs> And uh, you just watched it going on. It was just like there was a million clubs. To, you could go to five clubs in one night. You know, there was just, it was, you know, incredible. It was just insane. And um, that gradually kind of closed down as the mid-80s kind of happened because then you got those big rock and roll clubs or like like Limelight or, you know. When I first got there in 81, there was, you, could, you would go to places, you know, these clubs and it would be, there'd be artists there, there'd be musicians, there'd be, you know, there'd be people from the politicians, there'd be people from, you know, all at the all strata of New York life. And that, that kind of changed a bit as the 80s went along. But well, uh, Danceteria was incredible, wasn't it? Which is the first sort of like multi-floored club. Wasn't that where, Billy, didn't you, because did, did you, didn't you have an epiphany when you first moved there that you were inside? I think it was Danceteria. So I remember this story that, and, and Dancing by Myself came on and everyone hit the floor yeah. and you, this way you thought, fuck, my music can do it here. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of moved there, not really knowing, you know, what the hell was I really going to do? I had no idea, you know. I mean, number one in the American charts at that time was REO Speedwagon and people like that, you know. Like, yeah, sang incredibly high up, you know, harmony, harmony bands, really high. You kind of go, well, how, I don't sing anywhere. I mean, I, <laughs> you know, so you wondered, like, well, how the hell would I even fit into this place? But then one night I went to this place, Hurrahs. And because we put out dancing myself in England and I went to this place, Hurrahs, and um, not really thinking about dancing myself or anything. I just, you know, I went for a drink and stuff. And um, and there was a kind of a little dance floor and around the dance floor, there was all these kind of couches and settees and, you know, it just really, it was kind of, you know, and then most people were around the bar. You couldn't get, I was trying to get a drink. I couldn't get one, you know, because everybody's around the bar. And then suddenly... The DJ put something on and, and the bar emptied and I was left alone at the bar and uh, well, wow, this is great. I can, and they all just went, these people just went kind of, went ape. They went li literally, you know, they went over the, ta the tables, the chairs, the cities, pushed them over and got on the dance floor, just going crazy. And I went, oh, fantastic. Wow. Right, finally, I'll have a screwdriver. And when I got my drink, I sort of went, God, I wonder what that song is. It's driving them all so fucking mad. And when I listened, it was, fuck me if it wasn't dancing with myself. I just couldn't believe it. Wow. And then I realized, man, I don't have to change a thing. Keith Forsey's the right guy. I just have to keep doing what I'm doing. <laughs> so hang on. So, so, so first we've got you not remembering recording an album, and now we've got you not knowing it's your song that everyone's losing their minds to. <laughs> yeah. Did, what did Dancing With Myself, didn't it start off as a Gen X? Yeah, um, it was a Gen song. X. Uh, it was just me and Tony with uh, Terry Chimes and stuff and, and with Steve Jones. Tory Crimes. 
yeah. Tory Crimes. And did you re-record it for yourself? Did you do no, that? We never, re we never re-recorded it. It was just when they re when we oh. put it on my album. You see, um, we put it on an EP, and then we put it on my album. Because of that, the record company trying to, you know, make out something's different about it said it was a remix or so, a revert, you know, and it wasn't. It was just right. a track. Because there was no need to redo it. It was perfect. Keith had done a fantastic. That Keith was really dancing myself was kind of Keith's audition song, if you know what I mean. If I, you know, Keith Forsey, the my producer, we met him in '79, and we'd had we had this song dancing myself. We in 80 that's when we recorded it with him in 80 we just we he came to england and um it was really the tryout song and uh you know we recorded with terry terry chimes and uh we had about we had steve new we even tried steve new on guitar on it and uh <laughs> i don't know if i don't know if he ended up really on it but uh we tried and danny Cousteau from uh, tom robinson oh wow well, yeah 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 guitarist on it but uh, it was keith's kind of audition song and then you know after he finished mixing it and we kind of me and him we stood in the kind of control you know in the in the studio with it on really loud because we're thinking of it being played in the dance club and which i just went wow he's really pulled it off it's just this is my idea me and tony's idea taken to the you know where we wanted it to the nth degree but then it wasn't really a hit in england and uh, but there the, and then it, but there only was you know knocking people out on the dance floor in new york so and that's where i'd moved to so I realised all I've got to do is get with Keith Thorsey and figure out, you know, a song, something, a song just to keep this dance chart thing going. And that's when I originally did Moni Moni with Keith. You know, I got together with yeah. him and we did, I just thought we just need something else that's another dance floor thing, you know, just to keep this going. And uh, and it worked. It worked great, you know. Because that was the difference between the, what you what punk bands were doing in the 70s and what we and and everything was turning to in, in the 80s was was it was four on the floor drums and you know making records for clubs yeah that's kind of it yeah that's really what uh, it devolved down to and that's yeah we were there i deliberately um you know uh, said to my manager um bill o'coin I, I said to him what we need is a rock and roll d disco dance was what i meant you know producer and he went off he went to um Giorgio Moroder, who said, well, I, I don't want to do it, but uh, I've got this drummer who, you know, who writes, he produces, he writes songs. And so he came over and, um, yeah, as I say, you know, he did that, he, he auditioned with Dancing With Myself, he did such a great job. And then we worked on from there and it was, it was great, you know, and, um, yeah. And you wrote, you were the main, you were, you wrote, you were a singer-songwriter basically at that point, weren't you? I mean, White Wedding, I mean, that was just you, wasn't it, Billy? Yeah, well, yeah, White Wedding, actually, yeah, I wrote that on my own, yes. Um, I did start writing with Steve Stevens when I... You know, How did you meet, Steve? Initially, I was kind of looking around for a guitar player and stuff in New York, and um, my my manager, Pillow Coin, he managed Kiss and people like that. Um, he, um, he actually knew Steve, so... Um, so in the, what I said to Steve was I met up with him and I thought he was a great guy immediately. I just thought he's, he's, he's fantastic. And uh, I just said to him, you know, <clears throat> maybe we could just get together. I've, I've got this song, Moni Moni. I was dancing myself for Moni Moni. And, you know, I've, could you help me put a band together? And, if we'll, and then we'll just see if, if just putting this band together during, you know, if you were enjoying playing together and whatever, let's see where it goes. And what was he doing? What was Steve Stevens doing before? He was in a he was in a band, the Fine Malibus, but I think it had just broken up. So right. he, was, he was it was great. He was, and so yeah, we just started off as a bit of let's just put this band together for me, and and then we never stopped playing together. You know, we just we're still playing together today. It's and you know Steve Stevens, such a great guitar player. I just knew I could do anything I wanted with him. You know, any idea I wanted to do, he could do it. You know, I co-wrote a minor American hit with him for robert palmer oh, oh what, what was that guy it's called you're amazing and it was just a we had a when we were all we work on this album we had a band day and you know robert got us all together and it was like five of us we and we all came up with, the, with riffs and it went in i've got to say that and steve did this incredibly cool thing the first day of recording it was in milan where um he came in and sort of his amps were being set up and everything and there's this lovely italian engineer pino he says so uh what are we going to go for for guitar sound and Steve just threw this van, just threw a Van Halen CD onto the desk, just went that. <laughs> <laughs> but he was, a, he was extraordinary, Steve, wasn't he? I mean, he still is, but the, what, the way he changed, 
you know, he was, I mean, is it fair to say he was the kind of first shredder kind of, didn't he sort of invent that sound before anyone else, do you think? Yeah. Am I wrong? Is Was it, was it Eddie? Was it Eddie? Well, yeah. Eddie, Randy Rhodes. It was, uh, it, that was the, there was a more metal. He was the sort of punkier end of the metal players, wasn't he? Really, I guess. But, uh, yes. I still think Steve did, you know, he's not quite as well known maybe as Eddie, Eddie Van Halen. He's still, he's still in his own way because he was, he's always like, you know, created his own, he's always working on his own gear and he's always he's super, super musician. You know, he's just a super musician. Great parts, man. Yeah, his parts are fantastic. Really, really good arrangement. Like Mick Jerk. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's right. Was it Thriller? Wasn't it Thriller? What am I thinking? What, uh, guy, help me out. I'm, I've got a brain. No, that was right. I, I don't know what Steve did. No, that was no. later. No, Thriller was uh, that. That was Eddie Van Halen. Play? What did Steve played on a Jackson record? Yes, he did, didn't he? But I can't remember when it, it was later. Yeah, it was later. I can't remember what it was. But no, but the thing with Steve is he's, he, it's very similar to Mick Jones in that way, but like brilliant guitar arranger. Yeah. Really, yeah, you know. and we, you know, we started to write songs together. That's that's you know what was great too. We, we were a songwriting team and. Um, yeah, I mean, I may have written White Wedding on my own, but then you know, Rebel Yell and all those songs and me and Steve writing together, and it was it was really fun to, you know, because I enjoyed writing with 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 Tony James, and I kind of missed that. So it was great that Steve and I could kind of you know start writing together and uh, Idle Stevens. I think I think this was the same for you, Billy, because we we obviously came up against the FM radio format when we started off in America, and, and so did you. And getting airplay was really not easy i remember we had this we had danny glass was our plugger in in chrysalis and and um but what what broke all of our bands you know the british bands was mtv wasn't it and you you totally nailed that yeah so college radio helped a lot because they were playing the modern the new music but uh, the main radio stations especially with someone like me they had a thing about we don't play we we don't play um, people who have a punk rock image. It doesn't sell advertising dollars. You know that's what they would <laughs> actually put my picture on the cover of Hot in the City, by one of my first singles off of uh, my first album, Billy Idol. And um, they didn't really know, um, you know, my image was, you know, in a way. And um, so they they played the song. But then when they saw the cover of like uh, White Wedding, you know, in '82. They kind of said we're not playing someone who has a punk rock image, you know. So, but then uh, the college radio were playing it. We did. Then we started doing videos, and then MTV was right there. My manager actually told me in '79 that this cable channel was coming, so I kind of knew it was coming. But then, yeah, that's what kind of pushed us over the top. I mean, all of us. It broke that kind of radio barrier because they, they yeah, once MTV happened, then all the people, all the kids watching MTV, they phone in. Now that the radio knew it does, we do so. We can sell Because I remember getting really frustrated because it, it, MTV was everywhere, but it wasn't in Chicago and New York. And I remember sort of touring in America and, you know, all the kids really, you know, dressing like us and knowing what, what we looked like. And then we'd get to New York and we were, you know, no one knew it. So did, did, did you remember that? You, so you were living in New York, but you couldn't get MTV in New York. Yeah, I don't, I don't remember that. Uh... There may have been a time, though. You're right. There may have been a point. I just don't remember that. You know, <laughs> it, you know it's quite a lot of things I don't remember from back then. But do you do you remember coming on stage with Spandau in LA? Yes, yeah, of course. I, that's, I remember you playing there. Yeah, you had the tartan gear on. <laughs> where was it? Where I don't remember where we were. I think it was at Universal Amphitheatre, and you came on stage. Now I know you you had a big motorbike accident, but I thought I remember you having a broken leg at the time. But did you have a was that something else? Yeah, I did have a bit of a motorcycle accident in nineteen ninety February. So I, oh, so I, was, but I thought it was before then, but maybe it isn't. Maybe it was the early eighties. You, you played a club in the early eighties. I remember the underground club. That's right. Yeah, yeah. But you come on stage and sang. Um, I don't need this pressure on chart number one. And I remember the roar that you got when you came on stage. People loved it. Well, I think uh, I think I think they loved that. Uh, you know, a lot of they love England. They loved you know they loved the music that was coming out of England. It was we, we were what we were what was new. I mean, not maybe you, you, me, Duran Duran. I don't know. You know, the Human League. Everybody. We uh, Joy Division. I don't know. You know. Um, we were all the new music and they were just falling in love with it because it was kind of the new look too. It gave them, you know, a look that went beyond REO Speedwagon and all the poodle haired 
rock stars, you know, would keep well, that boy George in his mad wedding dress. I mean, <laughs> how amazing that they could we could sell that to America. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just uh, I think that's it. They fell in love with yeah, and we had all the we had just we'd we'd been for years working on the way, you know, the fashions really, the way we were putting over and we were very by the time we went to America, we were all kind of very, you know, we were very if you know what I mean. We've been doing it for five years or more, you know. And so then you had, then it's your imperial phase, isn't it? Then Billy, I suppose your mid eighties. It's funny. Are you a granddad now, Billy? Aren't you? I've seen you on Instagram holding your grandchild. Yeah, that's right. Yes, I do have her. She's uh, six months old. Um, they've actually moved to Texas, so um, because uh, she get she could get a place there that. Uh, a three-bedroom place for sixteen hundred dollars, which you couldn't get that in Los Angeles. So they, they've sort of moved to Texas. And How does it feel? It's lovely having a granddaughter. It's, this is what I really wanted: was uh, my own children to have children. Really, it's sort of fantastic, and um, she's so happy. My daughter Bonnie is is so happy, and it, it's, she's loving being a mum. So it's it's really fun. <laughs> it's fun watching. Her, you know? yeah, it's, it's, I love the idea of rock and roll grandparents. It's superb. <laughs> is, it, is it Jagger's a great grandfather now, isn't he? Or something crazy. <laughs> but, um, so, Billy, are you, are you, is your plan now to, to to get back with the Generation Sex thing, or to do your own solo stuff as well? Yeah, I hope we will do uh, some Generation Sex, uh, but at the same time, yeah, we have got this. I've got some, uh, you know, I've got this this EP that's ready to go, more or less. Um, actually, probably would have been out earlier this summer. But yeah, just because of the coronavirus, everything is a little bit held up. But uh, although it hasn't hurt what we're doing, because we're actually yeah, we're kind of perfecting what we're doing, so it's it's not too bad. It's and then yeah, in a minute we'll have an EP out, and uh, also I'll have this song with Miley Cyrus coming out on November the twenty seventh. It's amazing. That is fantastic, Miley Cyrus thing. But more importantly, Billy, I think what everyone really wants to know is, are you going to do another Christmas album? <laughs> actually. <we're... laughs> Uh, Dark Horse Rockets want to put it out next year, the one that I did. Oh, right. <laughs> I'm going to remix it and put it out. So actually, I listened to it the other day and went, actually, it's not that bad. I thought it was brilliant. I was absolutely brilliant. It's just, it's, it's brilliant. I don't know, it's just so we tongue it. firmly in cheek, I assume. Well, it is and it isn't because it kind of, well, it is, I suppose, but it fits in with, with what we grew up as with kids where like the glam rock thing of, you know, Roy Wood or Noddy Holder, everyone made, they made those Christmas records. Yeah. That's right. Well, apparently The Clash considered doing one. <laughs> they considered a clip I think it was Bernie Rhodes said people don't I don't think people feel that anarchic at Christmas <laughs> <laughs> but so Billy you're, you're you, do you, you mind um going I mean going back to your your accident because that really laid you up badly didn't it for a bit yeah you would have been an amazing yeah. T-1000 when I went to Stan Winston's uh in special effects studio they already had pictures of me as as if I'm. Of course. Was, yeah, it was that. And we did a you know whole facial thing. Oh. And um, but yeah, uh, yeah. Unfortunately, um, yes, I, um, I I couldn't run. That was the thing. And the T one thousand, you know that he has to, you know that part where they run the car. He he had to be able to run. And I I had this I had a terrible limp, and uh, so that I couldn't I couldn't. You know, there was no way there. And the keys, yeah, he, you know, the, you know, James Cameron said, "There's no way I can, I can kind of trick it up. It's got to be, yeah, you know, the person chasing has, the car, yeah." So, yeah, it's a shame, you know. But uh, I don't think I could have brought brought that kind of cold veneer that Robert Patrick brought. He really brought that kind of cold veneer. Really needed a great actor, really, actually. Oh well, no, I'm just gutted for you, mate. Really gutted. And is there any is there any more acting on the cards, Billy? Uh, I and mean, I'd like to. I and mean, obviously, I did. I did that thing in um, The Wedding Singer and yeah, stuff. You're too likeable, Billy. Steve, Steve Buscemi, he, he sang <laughs> true in The Wedding Singer, I think. So we both had uh, we both had something in that. <laughs> That's right. And you got a nice mention in um, Eric Idle's autobiography. Oh. The nice little gag thing you did with him. Was it a Santa Monica Pier yeah. or something? Yeah. Some charity thing where they, where they introduced Eric Idle and you got up and sang Always Look on the Bright Side of Life. Yeah. <laughs> No, he didn't. No, he did. no, he didn't. Yeah, we did the the. I've uh, come here for an argument or whatever. Either. Oh right, yeah. <laughs> great. Yeah. It's really good. Jack, it was Jack Black's first comedy. Uh, he does a comedy kind of um, festival yeah, out here, and it was the first one, and it was, it was fantastic. The two idols, uh, Billy Idol and Eric Idol, it was fantastic. That's really why I, I well because of Eric Idol being I D L E. I couldn't. You know, he already had the name. It's his real name. 
So I really wanted to be Billy Idle. But, but that's so funny because you're because you're not Billy Idol. You're Billy Idol. I mean, you absolutely are. There's that. <laughs> well, I think that was what that, that was great because it you know Billy Idol Lazy that would have been a, a sort of more typical punk name. But because you chose Idol, I loved that as a kid. It was like this guy has no shame. He loves what he's doing. You know, <laughs> he's a proper pop star. And so I think it was it was lucky. If we can thank Eric Idle probably for your entire career, Bill. That's right. Yeah, I mean, especially when when the eighties really kicked in and you had kind of Prince, Madonna, Billy Idol, it, it made loads more sense in the eighties. Actually, yeah, it's hard to make. Idle, Idle, Idle would have dated. That would have been got left behind with punk. Yeah, wouldn't have. No, yeah, transitioned at all. Whereas, yeah, yeah, thank God for Eric Idle. Yeah, gave me a career. Listen, thanks so much, Billy. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much, Gary. It's yeah, I'd love for you to take the time, mate. Really, really appreciate it. And, and hopefully when all this is over, we'll see each other in Los Angeles or London sometime. Love. It'd be fantastic. Love to see you. All right, mate. Good luck with everything. Brilliant. All right. Thank you, everybody out there. Cheers. Well, well that was great. And um, we will see you next time. Yes, thank you for listening. Don't forget to go to your favourite podcast uh, channel and uh, subscribe to us and even leave a review. Yes, and by the way, thank you for the reviews because they're stacking up and they're really, really nice. Um, yeah, amazing. So, yeah, really great. So thank you, everyone. Uh, so it's good night from me. And we'll see you next week. You meant to say good night from him. I know, I know, I know, I know. Oh, I'll do it now. That is good night from him. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.